Welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why you have to look at the crosstabs of the pole called life before you can find any meaning therein. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, who also knew Yorick but didn't see any reason to brag about it. <laughs> hey, Frank. I'd like to remind all of our listeners to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play, or whatever other apps they're using. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in pedantic. Quick housekeeping note, uh, I've been on the road for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Ellie is going on the road very soon, and that's why our schedule has been a little bit different the last couple of weeks and why we haven't had guests. It's not because everyone we know now refuses to speak to us. Although that's a possibility. The contrary are dastardly lies invented by our enemies who are legion. Yes, our legion and legions of enemies. Uh, we're looking at a couple more weeks of disruption, but in the meantime, we'll still be putting out new stuff. Uh, just might have a little bit of a different structure. So in the normal service, we'll resume sometime towards the end of this month, and we'll be back to having regular guests once we come up with enough of a pot of gold to bribe them with uh, each week. Yes, but in the meantime, do not listen to the lies of our enemies. They are lies. Lies, I tell you. Fake news. Lies! <laughs> Uh, right before we started, sat down to record this, uh, the blast from all the news outlets uh, came out that said uh, General McMaster's as the National Security Advisor um, grew some really big pears, and uh, he took care of business and a little bit of house cleaning. Um, we've said in a previous podcast that it'll become evident pretty quickly about how much power he actually has in this very uh, bizarrely, the bizarrely matrixed White House power power structure. Um, and particularly what he would do with Steve Bannon and KT McFarland, who was his deputy that was uh, hoisted upon him. Yes. And we saw a few days ago uh, that the uh, that McMaster, that was sort of a big question, how if is he going to have uh, a positive influence in the White House? And one of the early indicators would be what happened with KT McFarland. Uh, a, few, uh, a few days ago, uh, she was taken out back and shot. Uh, she was she has been offered the ambassador to Singapore job. Uh, which uh, she uh, claims to have sought herself. Uh, it is a plum of a job, there's no doubt about it, but no one leaves the heart of the National Security Council in the White House just so they can get some chili crab, however delicious it may be. <laughs> and as I just said, uh, Steve Bannon got uh, kicked off the National Security Council meetings, and if people remember, there was a big to-do about the fact that he was going to be at the meetings and the Director of National Intelligence and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was not uh, going to be at all the, all the meetings. Um, so it's interesting that it's kind of all coming together. I mean, this is what sane people who care about, well, I mean, let's just say it, the future of humanity have been hoping for, for McMaster to step up. Yes. And as for Bannon's being thrown off the National Security Council, I have, I have a, a top piece of analysis, and my analysis is, bah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, I have more. Bah! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is delightful. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's wonderful. Analysis. Um, still in the White House role, obviously, um, which is unfortunate, um, but he's off the NSC. Um, so it's basically, you know, they kind of, having completely fucked up the NSC from the beginning, they've started to repair it. It's basically like at the stage of when you're making a cocktail and add too much al alcohol. So it may not taste as good as you would hope, but it's still going to get the job done. 
That's exactly right. And uh, like a two-strong cocktail, this particular NSC is still going to leave us with a terrible hangover. Yeah. And the possible case of alcohol poisoning. Uh, so, uh, the, I mean, and it's the, the fun part about this is it's fairly common for roles within the White House or within an administration to be reviewed after a few months and for changes to take place. It's, it's not at all uncommon. Uh, but, but despite the fact that it feels like Trump was inaugurated something like 10 years ago, it's only been two months, which is a hard thing to get your head around. I was, you know, 10 weeks. This, this has just happened. This has just happened. They just got there. And already this is a pretty significant reorganization, particularly uh, given the fact that the initial and, and really fucked up NSC structure was pushed by someone who's, you know, for a long time seen as the real power in the White House and referred to as President Bannon and so forth. So this is a this is a, a major setback for uh, Steve Bannon and his his band of merry uh, of merry pranksters. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, they've also pushed out two deputy chiefs of staff. Um, so there's already a lot of reorganization going on that's sort of floating beneath the uh, the surface while big people are still kind of hanging out out there. But I mean, hey, Frank, can you hear those footsteps? <laughs> that's that's yeah. the that's the Reaper coming for either Bannon or Reince. I mean, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen much sooner than later. Or both. It couldn't happen to uh, to a nicer pair. Christ, what a clown show. But thank God, Jared is here. Yes, the Dauphin, the Prince, the hope of moderates everywhere, who, according to a recent poll, nearly 60% of voters believe Trump listens to. Um, so, you know, here's a, little, here's a little bit of a fun game you can play. Even though the tournament is over, uh, thanks to the inability of any non-UNC teams to box them out and to not get into foul trouble, you can start a new bracket. Jared's roles in the White House. Right now, Jared's roles are, and you might want to get a pen and paper because this is quite the list, religious relations, LGBT rights, reforming the federal government. Yeah, I'm going to repeat that. Reforming the federal government, Middle East peace, because, you know, that's just an easy skip and a jump. The war in Iraq, where he went this week, uh, interestingly timing, timed right after there were multiple articles that came out bashing him over the weekend. Next thing you know, he's on a helicopter sitting next to the chairman of the Joint Chief flying over Baghdad. Uh, oh, wait, I'm not done. The U.S.-China relationship, the U.S.-Mexico relationship, and our all, the all-time favorite, climate change. So basically every thorny, you know, multivariably uh, complex and, and fraught problem in the entire goddamn world my favorite is actually religious relations, a significant, a significant problem that dates back to the dawn of human history has now been layered with Jared. So we've got a problem that the, the problem that, that predates the nation state. This is Jared's now to solve and a problem that is an existential threat to the to the survival of the human race. So he's really bookended his portfolio nicely with the beginning and the end of human civilization. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a nice way to put that. That's very poetic. Can, can I offer a, a contrary theory on what's actually happening here? Please do. Donald Trump hates Jared Kushner. He hates him. <laughs> and he wants him to fail on just the, on the most spectacular public level possible. So that's oh, why there's man. all this that's in his lap, because there's no way he can fix any of this, and it's just his father-in-law out to fuck with him. That is a tremendous theory that I am a huge fan of. You know, it is... It's the long con. Know, 
It's the long con. If only that, that, that's exactly right. I, you know, just giving him, you know, completely unsolvable problems. If Clemson hadn't beaten Alabama, I would have. Then we know that Jared would have been put in charge of an SEC football program with the, with the sole responsibility of knocking off Alabama. Fortunately, he was spared <laughs> that anxiety by what happened in the national championship. Thus far, thus far, yep. thus far, yeah, that could still happen. <laughs> he could be sent to stopping the Golden State Warriors or something. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, that could be it. That could, that, that could definitely work or fix the Knicks. Fix the Knicks. Oh my God, that's it. That's what's going to happen next. Jared, the ultimate Jared can fix it. Yeah. The New York Knicks, a problem worse than religious re- relations in the Near East or how to solve climate change. <laughs> and somehow Jim Dolan is just to blame for all of it. It really is his fault. I maintain that. I mean, you put who the hell puts an arena on top of the goddamn train station? It's right. It's it's absurd. You know, it's interesting for a city that is so. Welcome to our New York City podcast. I'm Frank Spring with Ellie Jacobs. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about the Knicks. We'll talk about the Rangers. We'll talk about Penn Station. Uh, it's going to be great for a city that has so many that that has that can have so much atmosphere and so many sort of striking environments. This is not an original thought, but the Penn Station Madison Square Garden area compound is one of the most visually offensive uh, territories in the Western world. It is just, it's, it's a national disgrace is what it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, Biden said that LaGuardia was a disgrace. I mean, that's absolutely nothing compared to the Penn station apparatus with Madison square garden. I mean, when you see pictures of what Penn station looked like before they tore it down to build the stupid arena, it it makes you weep. Oh, it's gorgeous. You know, those, you know, people who, Many people who listen to this podcast probably probably spent a lot of time going back and forth between New York and D.C. When you get off the train at Union Station, it's lovely. You get off the train in Penn, at Penn Station, you think you're going to die, not from someone, you know, not from crime, but just from despair. Sadness. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Just give, it's true. Penn Station is a place, and that, that whole construct deprives you of your will to live. Yeah, and the fact yeah. that people, there are, I don't know, something 800,000, if not more, commuters who go through it every single day i can't imagine i can't imagine having to do that and it's not like there aren't plans to fix it there's a whole huge station across the you know the moynihan station across the street that they have plans drawn up to do and they just no one's done it it's a remarkable it is remarkable anybody could become anybody could become mayor of new york or governor of new york if they had a foolproof plan to actually do this to fix it this they would win with you know maybe losing five percent of the vote Sounds like a job for Jared Kushner. Sounds like a job. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but let's move on. Um, back to D.C. and the focus of this week a little bit um, until the Trump administration finds some other way to distract people. Um, not on purpose because I just think it's such a clown show that they're actually not distracting people oh, on purpose and they're yeah, just the- that incompetent. This conspiracy thing that like, oh, everything they do is about distracting from something else. No, but I really, really want us to start to put that to bed. Yeah. These people are not capable of planning more than their next step or their next piece of overcooked meat. Like it's that's as far as their thinking goes. Like everything. If it looks like a really dumb thing, it is a really dumb thing. Don't look any farther than that. Yeah. And I mean, some of that goes back to, you know, this goes to some of the Russia investigations that are going on. I, I don't think that any of those guys are clever enough to actually participate in a mass conspiracy. Being used as dupes in a mass conspiracy is something different. But oh, absolutely. actively participate in it. Uh, on a being, proactive way is I, I don't think that they're capable of that. Yeah, yeah. For some, for a lot of these people, being manipulated 
into acts that are illegal, treasonous, totally stupid, like being played for absolute idiots and, you know, and brutally and unrepentantly taken advantage of. Yeah, man, that's right where they are. Yeah. That's where they came in. But, you know, developing and executing a genuine conspiracy that takes that rolls out over time is just it's totally beyond the capacity of any of these fools. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the topic that seemingly the future of the Western Hemisphere is relying on going somewhat more smoothly than it looks like it's going to be going. And that is the uh, confirmation of Judge Gorsuch onto the Supreme Court. Um, of all the things that the Trump administration has done in the last, what are we at, 84 days, 82 days, something like that, this is the only one that has continuously gotten high marks on both sides of the aisle. Um, obviously, Democrats are not happy with Gorsuch as a pick, but the fact that Trump was able to do this and present him in a decent way and get him onto the Hill um, has gotten reviews from, let's just, let's say, the alt-center, uh, positive reviews from the <laughs> alt-center. Um so we kind of teased this a little bit on Twitter for those of us who follow us, and we mentioned it briefly, in, uh, or I mentioned it briefly in uh, the podcast I did solo uh, two weeks ago. Um, I don't, I am not a big fan of doing this filibuster in the way that it's being laid out right now, um, because it becomes basically a binary choice, and we know for sure two things at this point. We know for sure that Neil Gorsuch will be on the Supreme Court. He's going to be a justice. He's one of those guys who at some point this year or four years or eight years from now is going to be nominated to the court. Um, you know, the, the ABA, the Federalist Society, everybody else kind of looks at him. He's just one of those guys. He's got the bio. He's got the look. He's going to be on the court and he's going to camp out there for the next 30 years. Um, so he's going to be on the court. That is issue number one. It's a question of how he gets there. Is he confirmed by 60 votes or is he confirmed by 51 votes after the nuclear option is is put into place, and um, uh, uh, the filibuster is blown because you're no longer able to filibuster him. So, the issue to me is those two things are a reality. So, why fight it on this one? Fight it on the next one, which will actually think, change the balance of the court. Sure, and I, I and and I think that's there's a there's there's a reasonable argument in there. Uh, you know, both of the, Ellie and I are on the same page about one thing, which is uh, Gorsuch is going to be a Supreme Court justice. That this is what we're the discussion we're having now is one about process, not about result. There's nothing we can do to stop the guy. We don't have the votes. Uh, I but Frank, I think, speaking of that, I mean I, that is a con- also a concern of mine in the fact that it doesn't seem like the Democratic leadership has been honest with um, the masses at this point, and I think that there is more than a more than a, uh, a generous percentage of uh, activists at this point who, for some reason, are under the belief that this supporting this filibuster will result in Neil Gorsuch not being on the court. Yeah, that we can do a damn thing about it. No, that's, that, I think that's right. I think there is an unreasonable expectation of, our, of the, the agency of the Democratic Party in this, which is effectively none. Uh, I, I'm actually – I take the contrary position, which is uh, we should employ the filibuster and, and, there, and, and if the McConnell-led Republicans in, in the Senate want to nuke it, uh, that's on them, and and the reason is, you know, not to not to sound like everyone's uh, favorite Twitter expert, but it's time for some game theory. Uh, now I go away and and write a you know a, a Twitter thread that goes to two thousand you know goes to two thousand tweets, and everyone talks about how what a, a great political theorist I am. Now time for some game theory. If your opponent has a weapon, the only limitation of which is in his inclination to use it, at some point you have to measure that willingness. 
Uh, if the Republicans in the Senate are, if their position is, you know, if you dare to use the filibuster, we'll nuke the filibuster to get our justice in. Uh, we need to find out if they are in fact prepared to do that and to to change the rules of the Senate forever. My concern would be if we don't deploy the filibuster this time, if we let Gorsuch pass through, uh, and next time. Uh, and then we wait for next time to use the filibuster. Then they'll just nuke the filibuster. Then we're not going to retake the Senate. There's not going to be some kind. And I and I think it's very foreseeable that there could be another Supreme Court uh, vacancy within this presidency. Sadly, um, you know, I think at that point, you again, I think there it may be beyond our power not just to stop Gorsuch, but to stop two Trump-nominated uh, justices from from getting uh, from getting nominated and confirmed. It does. It doesn't behoove us to withhold the filibuster, get you know, let Gorsuch pass this time, and then you know, put it into place next time and get nuked. Uh, they're going to get what they're going to get if they're going to if they're going to go so far as to as to nuke the filibuster. You know, let them do it, dare them to do it, if they, and you know, and on their heads be it. And again, this is a process argument. It changes the outcome not at all. And and it's worth pointing out here. There's very little good politics in this. For the most part, uh, there are some voters who are very interested in this kind of stuff, but for the most part, voters tend to see this uh, as, and voters tend to see this as, as essentially a technical issue. They're more interested in whether or not justices are put to a vote and confirmed than they are about the process by which it happens. So in some respects, we're talking about a very, very inside game here. Yeah. And I mean, it is an inside game and Continuing in our game theory uh, concept here, uh, it is very much a zero-sum game. I mean, he's going to end up on the court. There will be winners and there will be losers. And in addition to the fact that he's going to end up on the court, the filibuster, the nuclear option will be employed either this week or it'll be employed at the next um, uh, Supreme Court nominee, which, as you correctly pointed out, is likely to happen at some point in the near term. I mean, there are, not, there are some very old people on that court, and, you know, God bless them, and, you know, they should have long lives, but there's reality and there's reality at some time. Um, so the only way that the nuclear option isn't employed is if they gain enough seats in two years to not have to use it the next time, to not have mm-hmm. sure. filibuster, yeah. have no purpose, which is also entirely plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that I, that I keep sticking to is that, uh, believe it or not, uh, and it is remarkably difficultly difficult to, to believe there are institutionalists still left in the Senate. And I do genuinely think that there is the possibility that you can threaten the filibuster and threaten it and threaten it and not make McConnell go nuclear by off, by asking for something in return. And that will, that would be something like, we won't filibuster if we can postpone this vote until after the investigation, which I think is a genuinely reasonable thing to ask because you may have an illeg- a president who is, you know, I don't want to say illegitimate, but was elected with nefarious, <laughs> through nefarious means, nominating a justice. So I think that that is something that Democrats should, continue, should force. You know, walk it all the way to the brink till the point where McConnell has to make a decision to use it or not and say, you know what, maybe we'll give this up, but we want um, we want to put the filibuster back into place for all the other nominees and all the other judges that Reid blew up stupidly, you know, three years ago. Um, so even though it is a zero-sum game, I do think that there is some aspect of this institutionalist traditionalism that can play a role here. I think your your point's not a bad one. There there certainly are some 
or, or at least we speculate that there are some kind of institutionalist senators remaining, uh, one of whom we hasten to add is not John McCain. Whatever Joe Scarborough tells you, uh, McCain, for those who didn't see McCain's point about the about nuking the filibuster this week was uh, that he will vote for the measure, uh, but it is the beginning of the end of the Senate. Uh, and that is John McCain all over. I mean, he was, you know, will say the right thing as long as he is not compelled to do the right thing uh, in cases of this kind. So it is. I would be inclined to to. I'd be more inclined to agree with your analysis if I didn't think that there is just no way that that deal will hold off the filibuster uh, until you know after an investigation into into Russia and Trump. If I thought there was any way that the GOP would take that deal, uh, because the there's there's very little upside for them. Because if the if the investigation goes well, then they only get you know goes were to go well for them, then they only get later what. They could have had now, yeah. Uh, so there's no there's no benefit there. And if it goes badly, their entire agenda is in shambles, and we don't have to, we, you know. And and Gorsuch is probably going to get pulled along with everything Trump has ever done. Um, so you know, I think that's I think that's the, uh, I mean, I, I think that's the, the there. So I think I'd be more inclined to agree with your analysis if I didn't think that uh, that the if I thought the Republicans would would agree to it. But again, this is kind of an angels on the head of a pin thing because. You know, it is it is a and I think this conversation is illustrative of of a trap that progressives can get into when we start talking about and can get quite riled up about our options to filibuster to not filibuster when we should do it how we should employ it uh, when in fact the outcome is going to be exactly the same Neil Gorsuch is going to be on the Supreme Court and there's not a goddamn thing we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm hanging hope on the better angels. <laughs> <laughs> in the personalities of a, just a handful of senators, and that's a that, that's a losing bet most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but that is the way to bet. Yeah. Speaking of betting, let's move on to the greatest and the greatest betting roulette wheel: uh, betting on your own health. Oh yeah, let's. Have, that's exactly right. Let's let's you know, t- turning now to uh, something that's at least a little bit more fun, uh, where the. Where the natural balance between malice and incompetence in the part of the, this administration and Republicans in, the, in Congress has reverted to its normal position, which is with incompetence uh, in a slightly dominant position over malice. Uh, the effort to uh, bring back the uh, health care bill, the uh, Trump care, and uh, repeal the uh, ACA is going about like you'd expect. Uh, the Freedom Caucus is still basically taking a position that, uh, you know, just, you know, take the, take the sick, the unwell, the needy, the people uh, who don't have health insurance or who stand to lose it, and just stack them high. You know, stack them like cordwood and let God sort them out. Uh, so that's, that is their position. The rest of the Republican Party, including Mike Pence and the administration, not quite so keen on some of the draconian measures that the Freedom Caucus insists on. Uh, so in spite of Mike Pence's much lauded uh, legislative diplomacy, uh, it looks like the Republicans are no closer to getting a, uh, getting this, getting a, a, a workable bill uh, before the Congress than they were when this thing went down in flames uh, so recently. So that's, yeah, that's, so, so that, that's, that's, that's where we stand. It is entertaining to watch though. Oh, extremely. I mean, in the same way that, you know, watching a train fall off a bridge would be entertaining in that it would be a pretty dramatic event and right. uh, compelling. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, this and also is, you'd wonder how the hell could a catastrophe like that even begin to happen. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the that, that infrastructure, that's the thing we can talk about next week. Oh, we already did infrastructure. <laughs> that's exactly right. More trains falling off bridges. <laughs> oh, no. 
But, you know, I want to go, this goes back to, again, something that, that we've talked about in the past is uh, Democrats need to do something. They can't just sit there and laugh and say, ha ha, we're right, you're wrong, ha ha. I, I beg to differ. I would like to do nothing but sit here and laugh. <laughs> Sitting and laughing is what we do. Also passing judgment. Also indeed. passing judgment, indeed. Uh, but apparently the, our strengths. the Democrats are meeting to actually discuss fixes to the ACA, which uh, is absolutely vital. And that, you know, it's something Hillary campaigned on and it's something that they would absolutely be doing if they had any semblance of any kind of power in Washington right now, although they don't. Um, but, you know, put together a package of fixes to the ACA that you would ordinarily bring to the Democratic president and just bring it to Trump. Make the ulti- call the ultimate dealmakers bluff. Bring him something that says, you know, right now you've got, we can get you 190 votes. Can you get us the other 30 from moderate Republicans? Is it, can you get behind this so that, you know, you can be the guy that saved health care? You know, and, and it, you know, it has to be done under the context that no one loses insurance. Premiums don't, aren't going to rise. No changing in the pre-existing condition policy or the policy that people under 26 years of age can stay on their parents' policy. Those are all incredibly popular, and that's why the moderates got spooked by this lunatic um, uh, uh, Freedom Caucus bill. It's about access and affordability. The argument of if the government should have a role in healthcare has been over for 50 years. Medicare and Medicaid ended that. Federal government has a role to play in healthcare. So now it's just an argument of what that role is. And the starting point basically needs to now be, and this was what McConnell was actually really afraid of, the starting point has to be with the bare minimums that were put in place by the ACA. Right. And it's there, there is a danger here of potentially handing Trump a political win if you go to him and you say, look, this is a package that I think everyone can get behind. Uh, if you can get the Republicans, we can pass this thing and continue to improve Obamacare. Uh, you know, at some level, I, I think that there is, this is one of those things where you're talking about, you're talking about people's health care. Like this, health care is one of those things that it, because it is such a politicized issue, and, you know, I mean, it is it is a matter of politics. It's a matter of government. Of course, it's politicized. That's not a pejorative. It just but it gets very. But, you know, the, the discussions about it tend to be very political. And because Obamacare had such profound electoral ramifications, we tend to look at health care in a more political way. But the truth is, this is people's lives. This is this is a this is a case. And I, you know, I don't want to sound chuff and pope holy about this uh, because there is electoral politics here that needs to be considered. But this is about people having access to care that can improve their lives and save their lives. Uh, and if there is a way to make uh, health care more affordable and, uh, and, you know, and more accessible, even if that bill ends up getting signed by a President Trump, uh, then, you know, there is more than, than, than so be it. This is, you know, this is what we're here for as a party. And there's more than enough that we can campaign on uh, in, you know, in its, in its absence. And, and that's, so anyway, this is, you know, this from the strictly electoral political side, that's one of the reasons why I think the idea of putting up a good package of what a, what an improvement to the ACA would look like and taking it to, you know, taking it to Trump would be a really good, would be a really good thing from an electoral political perspective. I can also say it because of the status of the Republican uh, caucus and because of the nature of this administration, I think the odds that he would be able to pull that off are essentially none. Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think that he that McConnell can get could get enough votes in the Senate to 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 get that. I, I don't think he would pick it up, um, despite yeah. the fact that I think there's probably half a dozen, potentially half a dozen Republicans who would support something that actually make the fix. I mean, if you think about just and again, I don't know the details of the history enough, but if Medicare and Medicaid was put into place by Johnson, the next two presidents were Republicans. And there must have been fixes that were put into place by Nixon and Ford to these two massive programs. They weren't perfect when they got rolled out immediately. 
So the idea that you're going to lo- that the Democrats would necessarily lose leverage by doing this, either by calling the bluff and having Trump say no to it, or by putting it on his lap and actually him getting a victory out of it, where you can still castigate the Republicans that voted against it. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. At some point, you know, you do have to do what's right for the country, and this seems like one of those things that you know it's right for the country. Absolutely. So, and 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 on the subject of the politics as well. I mean, there's YouGov came out with some good polling that is, I think, pretty illustrative uh, on how. So this 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 is the favorability for various. Uh, various states of healthcare in uh, in the U.S. Uh, you know, potential uh, policy scenarios uh, for expanding Medicare to uh, every Amer- to Americans over the age of fifty five. So Medicare for the fifty five plus crowd, seventy two percent popularity. I mean, that's this is we talked about this on the last podcast. I think as a as on our last episode as part of your as part of the potential package of. Uh, fixes or improvements that should that Democrats should be out for. That's that's a stone cold winner right there. Uh, America for fifty or Medicare for fifty five plus seventy two percent, fifty seven percent favored a public option, sixty percent favored Medicare for all. These are obviously very closely related concepts, uh, and sixty one percent favored a federally funded insurance for all. So again, there's a pretty serious appetite here for more. And this is to your point. The debate about whether government has a role in healthcare is over. Uh, it's, you know, it was ended 50 years ago, and there's an appetite from. Weirdly, there is an appetite for more government for more government in healthcare, but it's expressed in this particular way, which which again is uh, which again is about government providing more, uh, having a greater role in providing access. And part of me thinks a lot of this is just about simplicity, and this is something that neither side has quite gotten hold of. That health, that managing the various ways of getting healthcare in this country, as anyone who has been through the process recently knows, is nightmarishly complex. Which is not to say that countries that have single payer systems are not, you know, are not nightmarishly complex. They can be quite bureaucratic and quite complex. Big human endeavors are, um, but the virtue of public options of Medicare for all of the government creating a a, a larger and more monolithic option for. Uh, for Americans, is it's a simple thing. It's you know you just where do I go for my government? Where do I go for my healthcare? Oh, I've got this. This is you know you know we you know this this is the most common option. It's the biggest option. It's the one that most people go for. Oh, I'll just sign up for that, as opposed to looking through this dizzying array of different options. Because the idea certainly Americans I think would like to have some degree of choice about their healthcare. They'd like to be able to choose their doctors, but the idea that Americans really want choice, choice above all in their healthcare. I think is a bit of a canard. I think actually most Americans would like to just know where to go for healthcare and get good quality healthcare at a lower cost. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I think we've spoken about this before. Uh, even the idea that you know people who have employer sponsored healthcare they don't have a choice. They're not getting to pick between you know they get to pick pick between the plan that's going to get you you know eyeglasses and dental care or the plan that doesn't have that for a couple hundred bucks less. So it's not like there are oodles and oodles of options out there. And the point I keep coming back to, and this is where you were getting to, is there is little argument that it would probably be overall cheaper for the government to offer some base level of service to everyone and for people to then buy private insurance on top of that. This exists in some countries that have uh, single-payer insurance, uh, Israel, for instance. they you know There is a base level of care that everyone gets, and if you want, you can pay to have more insurance on top of that to take, you know, you can go to a different doctor or a different hospital, but you're guaranteed some level of coverage that's not going to bankrupt you if you have to go get your tonsils taken out. Um, 
But, uh, you know, some of this also goes back to the fact that the Obama administration just bungled the rollout of every aspect of Obamacare to the point that people, you know, the polling, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but the polling demonstrated that as recently as a few weeks ago, people didn't know the difference between Obamacare. People thought Obamacare and the ACA were different things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's all this data and anecdote to the effect of like, oh, well, you know, people saying, oh, I thought we were just going to roll back Obamacare, not the ACA. Yeah, and it's remarkable just how badly they, they I mean, start and end with the fact that the webs, the website screw up is just, I mean, uncomprehensibly stupid and just, I mean, you want to talk about dropping the ball, it's, you know, everybody else is playing basketball and you showed up with a deck of, not even cards, you showed up with a deck of Uno cards, that's how far off you were, and you dropped those. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that enough analysis and blame has actually been placed on the Obama administration for how, how, the, how they handled this, and in particular how the Senate handled it. Um, but you know, that's all kind of behind us. And the reality is that the polling that you just said, sixty-one percent of people who want some kind of federally funded insurance for all—that's th- an astounding number. I mean, that 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 for most policies, that's that that's a no-brainer. Sure. Oh, yeah. And it flies in the face of this of the narrative that like, oh, well, you know, what people hate about the ACA is that it gets government too much into healthcare and so forth. I mean, that's that's just, you know, it, the ACA was a was a powerful organizing principle for for a, you know, for a particular sect, especially of of, uh, you know, conservative voters. But it was really, in many respects, it wasn't actually about the detail of the ACA or Obamacare at all. And you can t- and you can see that by the fact that you know, people support the exchanges. They support a lot of what's happened, but are still against Obamacare. It was it was emblematic and sort of triggering of broader tenden- of broader tendencies of Democrats of which that of which those voters were afraid. The idea that we're going to come for your health care and take it over, that we're going to make you do stuff and try and control your life, which in point of fact is not what's is what's not actually happening. So when pushed to it, this is why we've seen the ACA's numbers improve really ever since serious talk of repeal began, because when actually pushed to it and to think about what the bill does, people have been broadly supportive of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, part of the uh, opposition to it of government, you know, the Republican messaging is stuff that they've been building for the last 30 years. I mean, Grover Norquist with the, and, and Ronald Reagan with, uh, you know, big government is going to take over your lives. And it's, you know, just the short of socialism and the lunatic idea that if you cut government, you're going to cut taxes I mean, this, it was sort of the culmination of all of that. And it was with a president who was distinctly unpopular with a large segments of the Republican base mixed with, I mean, just what you were saying. I, I don't know that people are opposed to the ACA overall or opposed to the exchanges. They want health care. They're opposed to the price. Their prices going up. They want access. They're opposed to the fact that this system isn't working necessarily the, as quickly as it as it could. And one of the reasons is, is that insurance companies have been, you know, they don't know which way to bet. I mean, these are all publicly traded companies and they have to look into the future and kind of see what things are going to be playing out two or three years from now. And for the last eight years, seven years, you've had one party saying that they're going to get rid of the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's created some instability and, and you raise a really good point here, uh, which again, we, we sort of talked about this a little bit last week, but you know, I mean, you know, despite my defense of it, you know, Obamacare, the ACA is not perfect. Uh, there are places where it has not worked well, where it's where it is in fact struggling, uh, and this is why we're one of the reasons why we're pushing this, uh, why we're why we are you know calling for a, or, or prescribing uh, a, a a pitched set of fixes for this thing 
because you know the truth is like it's it's a good system. It's it, but it is one that that really seriously needs improvement if it's to do its job. And you know, in the in the understandable crowing over the triumph of incompetence over malice and the Republicans' inability to do away with it and replace it with something far far worse, we shouldn't lose track again of the fact that it is not a perfect thing at all, uh, and and it needs some fixes. And it's incumbent upon the Democratic Party to propose some of those. Yeah, I think with that, we'll uh, wrap up the show. Uh, we're going to make it a little bit shorter this week, but uh, as Frank mentioned, uh, I'll be doing some traveling um, over the next few weeks, so uh, we'll still be p- putting some shows up. Uh, they may just be kind of uh, our individual thoughts or maybe an interview if we can sneak one in. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever application you use. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship. And as always, that ship with a P as in Picking, picking between malice and incompetence. <laughs> and with that, uh, Frank, where are we going this week? Where are we taking ship? We take ship this week for Gibraltar, the rock that has for centuries served as cornerstone for the empire on which the sun never sets. Following the example of former British Conservative Party leader Michael Howard, the British press and also the Spanish press, who gamely jumped in, we're spoiling for an all-out war with Spain over Gibraltar. Not for us, or indeed the government of Theresa May, the craven councils urging the contemptible coward's refuge of restraint. We disdain the pusillanimous promises of process and prudence. No, friends, we will not cower in the sheltered bay of meekness, but set boldly forth upon the stormy seas bound for glory, honor, and war with Spain. The fact that there is no war with Spain actually happening at the moment must not discourage us. We'll get one going here soon enough. Not because it is necessary. It isn't. Not because it is wise. It's certainly not that either. Not because it is to the credit of anyone involved. Indeed, this whole exercise is incredibly and irredeemably dumb. But because honor and Brexit demand it, somehow. The future of Gibraltar must be settled not in the shadowy halls and upon the corrupt negotiation tables of Brussels, but yardarm to yardarm in the Bay of Biscay. We'll thump them again and again and board them in the smoke. Onward to glory. Friends, we take ship now for Gibraltar. Gibraltar.